today on Ag News Daily. Roberts um, and Conaway retiring, you know, together that's 85 years of congressional experience and uh, all that being spent uh, working on behalf of production agriculture. And I think I think that's just uh, that's just a big loss to have all at one time. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Thursday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, I was just dealing with some hiccups, but I think that they are gone now. So we won't have to put our listeners through that today. But how are you doing? I'm doing great. I have to say I did get a few giggles out of hearing your hiccups, but I'm also a chronic hiccupper myself. So I guess that's, you know, the new title that I've just given us. <laughs> It's quite um, quite an issue, Ashton, to have hiccups all the time. Is it like a, a big health issue or just kind of, you no, know? I think I just you know. <laughs> like breathe too fast or get really excited and start talking really quickly and don't take a breath. So it's typical for me. I'm right there with you, Delaney, but it's a good day down here in Texas. We're seeing some great weather. I don't really think that there's too many clouds in the sky today. I haven't looked outside in a while, but it is warm here. It's like mid to upper 70s, which is just so crazy because we just had a freeze last week. But it's typical Texas weather for you. It is um, untypical Iowa weather here. We've been having record high temperatures for this time of year, as well as uh, quite a few other areas across the country. So I'm enjoying it. It feels more like a late late summer than a fall, early winter season right now. Well, Delaney, moving on past that weather, I have some election updates uh, so far, I haven't really seen the Electoral College numbers rise too much. Right now, Biden is sitting at 264 and Trump is sitting at 214. But there are those states, of course, that are not done counting ballots. So, you know, can't really say who is the clear winner just yet. But I've also heard a little bit of talk of there being a tie. I can't I don't remember if it's 269 to 269 or 270 to 270. Mm-hmm. But I think that would just be absolutely insane if that were to happen. I think it's physically impossible to have a 270-270 tie because what would that math work up to be? Well, maybe it's not. I think there's is I believe there's uh, 538 total electoral votes. Am I right, Ashton? So, yeah, 269 to 269 would be the highest any candidate could get. So if if. um any candidate gets above 269, then it's an obvious immediate winner. But there is the possibility, Ashton, you're right, that we could see a potential tie. Yeah, Delaney, you you are correct. It's 269, 269, because there's 538 votes. You would be correct on that. But I haven't seen too many people talking about that tie, really just people concerned with Nevada and Pennsylvania at the moment, of course. Mm-hmm. Alaska, Georgia, and North Carolina, all three are not done counting their votes just yet, along, of course, with Nevada. But, um, but yeah, we talk a little bit more about the election and what's going on later with our conversation with Andrew Harker of the Russell Group. So I don't want to get into too much of the nitty gritty details about that. But one thing that I do want to go ahead and bring to light, because it's definitely not something that I had really thought about until I talked to Andrew, is three of the four 
or big four, I should quote unquote say, chairs in the Senate House Committee are up for grabs at the moment. Colin Peterson lost his seat and we are seeing two retirements coming out. Mike Conway and Pat Roberts are both retiring this year. So like I said, three out of those big four chairs are up for grabs at the moment. So we're going to see some agricultural leadership really change here in the hopefully near future. We uh, certainly are, Ashton, and hopefully those will be good changes for agriculture. But one change we've had that is successful has been great for especially commodity prices. And that's assuming that you are a grain farmer and not an end user or a livestock farmer needing to feed your livestock. But we've seen grain prices skyrocket here because of this continued Chinese demand-driven rally. We saw Chinese soybean futures reach their highest point since 2008. We've seen the Dalian corn futures surge these past few months. And while that's not great for Chinese folks, that has been very supportive for U.S. prices. It seems that farmers in China are holding out on making any sort of sales because they're waiting to see if prices in China continue to go higher. And that has created a little bit of a domino effect that China has needed the grains. Brazil and Argentina are in their planting window, and they've been turning very heavily to the United States, so much so that we saw the FAS release in a statement just today that they are now estimating uh, 22 million metric tons of China corn imports, Chinese corn imports here for the 2020-2021 growing season. Now, that's a pretty significantly because the previous USDA official outlook was just 7 million metric tons, Ashton. So we are continuing to see that story really surge our markets higher. Well, Delaney, another big change that I've been looking at today is dairy exports. The U.S. Dairy Export Council says exports are on pace to exceed records that were set in 2018 with whey and cheese demand driving sales. September export volumes were 5% higher than 2019, and milk solids exports are up nearly 16% for the first three quarters compared to last year. Whey product exports through September are nearly double the amount that they were at in 2019. And sales to China during the month were up 134%. And again, that was back in September. And the USDEC says that nearly 20% of exports for the first nine months of the year were to Southeast Asia or 48 of U.S. milk production. So it sounds like some good news on exports with the dairy industry. That certainly does. That certainly does, Ashton. And we talked about that a little bit on this Monday's, this past Monday's Market Monday episode with Naomi Bloom. We talked dairy. So if you've got dairy questions, that'd be a good episode to go back and check out. But looking forward here, talking exports a little bit more, U.S. ethanol exports dropped 23% in September to about 77.2 million gallons, which is 20% below levels at this time last year. I don't think this comes as any huge surprise. We're seeing, again, 
folks and places across the world shut down because of coronavirus concerns. And that is continuing to rock the oil and ethanol markets, which were slowly starting to make their climb back. But it appears now we are going to continue to see some slower than normal oil and in turn ethanol prices, which, as we've mentioned before, could be somewhat detrimental for corn long term here. Well, Delaney, we're continuing to see some support for the agriculture industry. The Michigan Agriculture and Rural Development Commission has approved nearly $300,000 for three investment projects this year through the Food and Ag Investment Fund. The grants leverage more than $90 million in additional private investment in the state's food and ag industry. The largest grant of $150,000 was awarded to Hudsonville Creamery for facility expansion in Holland and includes a new cold storage building. Star of the West Milling Company was also granted $80,000 for a new flanking building and processing line for ready-to-eat food products and a new accelerator slash incubator called FARM, which stands for Food, Agriculture, Research, and Manufacturing Center, was awarded $63,500 to help expand facilities, including commercial food production, testing, and training. So definitely some great expansions for Michigan agriculture. That is a good expansion there for folks in Michigan dealing with agriculture. You're absolutely right, Ashton. I don't have any new inputs to say. Sorry, I thought I had something catchy and then I got partway through and I was like, eh, I don't have anything left. Well, Delaney, I don't have anything left when it comes to news. What about you? I have just one other recent development I thought our listeners might be interested in following because I think this has been a really interesting story to watch develop. We've reported on multiple price fixing allegations now across the protein industry. And we had some news today when it came to JBS. We've seen JBS South America settle a portion of their pork price fixing lawsuit in a Minnesota federal court. Along with JBS, the lawsuit also targets Tyson Hormel and a number of other affiliates. And at the center of these suits are accusations that meatpackers used basically a data team to exchange non-public information on prices and that they work together to signal each other when they should pull back jointly on prices. Uh, this action comes about two weeks after a judge ruled an antitrust case against top U.S. meat processors. And additionally, it comes amidst all of these different price fixing cases we've got going on. And really the end goal here by... Folks that work in the industry, specifically producers, retailers, and wholesalers, is that we see the government enforce antitrust laws much heavier. That's really kind of the ask here after all of this going on. Yeah, Delaney, that JBS story is definitely one that I've liked to watch. And so I'm, I'm glad that you followed up with that new development there. But what do you say we hop into the markets for the day? Let's do it, Ashton, because today, again, we had some very explosive markets. Uh, grains rallying still on continued demand, as well as South American weather concerns. And it was supportive all the way across the board. 
board starting off here in the December corn contract up four cents today to close at 409 and a quarter. The March up three and a half to close at 414 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, big moves today, breaking above $11 to close 22 and a three quarters cent higher at 1101 and three quarters. January up 17 and a half to close at 1103 and three quarters. Chicago wheat also up on the day as the December contract added three quarters excuse me, three and a quarter cent to close at 609 and a quarter. The March up four to close at 613 and a half. Livestock also had a pretty heavy day today, trading higher, mostly as the December live cattle contract closed 47 and a half cents higher to end at 108.35. The February up 67 and a half to close at 111.45. Feeder cattle mixed trade today as the November contract pulled back 12 and a half cents to close at 137.57. The January up a quarter to close at 135.40. In the lean hog markets, the December contract adding a dollar oh seven to close at sixty seven forty two. The February up a dollar forty seven to close at sixty eight forty seven. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, November shedding twenty cents today to close at twenty five twenty three fifty seven. The December down seventy five to close at nineteen forty two. Ashton, I'm very excited to turn it over today with your conversation with Andrew Harker. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Andrew Parker, who is the vice president of the Russell Group. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Ashton, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it a lot. So, Andrew, why don't, before we get into the conversation about politics, the election, and what it means for agriculture, before we get into that good stuff, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background in politics and how you got to the Russell Group? Yeah, sure. Um, happy to do it. Um, I would say it was pretty uh, roundabout way of getting here. I, you know, I did not grow up on a farm. Uh, you know, I worked a little bit on my uncle's small cow-calf operation growing up, but that wasn't even his primary uh, means of uh, income. So I certainly don't claim to be a farm kid, but I grew up in a pretty rural area of Virginia. I went to Virginia Tech and found myself in the College of Ag and Life Sciences and just fell in love with agriculture, um, got into the animal and poultry science uh, program there at Virginia Tech and got into the forestry club, the poultry judging club, and just kind of jumped right in and then had an opportunity um, to do an internship on the House Agriculture Committee uh, when my hometown congressman was chairman at the time. And I jumped at that and did that. And I guess you could say the rest is history. Just uh, landed with a really great firm here, the Russell Group. And, you know, we are all focused on food and agriculture, uh, just a broad, um, broad array of issues that we get to work on. And and um, it's been an absolute joy to do it, uh, which which is why the, my first job is also my current job. So uh, th- that's a little bit uh, about me. And again, our firm is all food and agriculture focused. Well, Andrew, to really kick things off here, talking about the election, there's been so much talk about timeline and what's going on in some of those states who are still counting votes. But why don't you give us just a small rundown for those who might not be paying too much attention to what's going on in the election right now? Just talk us through what's going on at this point in time. Yeah, so the real focus right now on the presidential uh, vote is is in Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. And even though Arizona has already been called, there's still some some focus there as the numbers have, have narrowed a little bit. 
Yeah, I think basically the, the president's got a very narrow pathway to get to 270. Um, if if the races that have been called to date stay the same, and that would include Arizona, then the vice president only needs to win Nevada to get him to 270. Um, and then so the president would have to either win uh, Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, or he could lose Nevada, but something would happen in Arizona um, that right now I don't think is being predicted. Um, so that's where all the focus is right now. I think, um, you know, a lot of attention on the, the length of time that the vote count is taking. You know, I think we were all um, pretty much aware that there was going to be some delay. I think it was predicted by virtually all the pundits that this was going to take a little time and we could see an initial, uh, what did they call it, uh, initial red wave mirage followed by, you know, they, what they called the, the, the blue mirage, which was these late votes that we're seeing come in because a lot of those are coming from uh, from mail ends. Uh, but that is the, the attention right now. Obviously, you got a couple of outstanding uh, Senate races. Um, and if you look to the count right now for uh, Secretary Purdue in Georgia, uh, former member of the Ag Committee, um, he's he's right there around 50 percent. And if he stays there, then he won't have to do a runoff. Um, you know, S Senator Leffler from Georgia, who is on the Ag Committee, um, is 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 likely to be in a runoff with um, um, with the Democratic uh, contender there. Um, and that would happen in January. So the focus really now is on um, how those last couple of races pan out. Um, I think at this point, it's looking like the uh, the Republicans will will maintain control of the Senate, barring any surprises down in, uh, I would say, Georgia. Um, I know there were a number of key um, agriculture rural senators that there was a lot of questions about, you know, even folks like uh, uh, Senator Gaines in Montana, Senator Ernst in, in Iowa, and both of them handedly won their elections. Um, so I think the focus now is just these last couple of outstanding uh, counts to come in and potential one, maybe two runoffs uh, in Georgia. Um, on the House side, obviously uh, very clear that the House, the House is going to be continued to be controlled by uh, by the Democrats. Um, you know, I think it was a surprise that uh, Republicans picked up seats. Most of the projections were that uh, the Democrats could gain anywhere from 10 to 20 seats. Um, and in fact, Republicans actually saw gains. Now, if you look at those pickups so far, uh, they're primarily from freshman Democrats who, who won during the last midterm in 2018 when President Trump wasn't on the ballot. So uh, in my view, it really... It, having Trump on the ballot for those districts really made a difference for uh, the House races. You know, if, if, you, if you're looking at Abby Finkenauer in Iowa, for example, who was who was defeated, she she won in 2018. Um, actually, Democratic turnout for her increased 17 percent, but the Republican turnout uh, was up 38 percent. So I think in those those House races. Um, where you're seeing flips primarily, uh, rural areas, ag areas were, uh, were, were seats that, that got flipped just last election cycle. And that was when Trump was not on the ballot. So that's kind of just a summary of maybe where things stand and what folks are, are looking at.
Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the the House and the Senate. That was one of my questions because I can't even pretend to know what's really going on with the House and the Senate right now because I've been so focused on what's going on with the presidential election. So I definitely appreciate that, Andrew. But when we're looking at a timeline, I've seen so many different days on when states are going to stop accepting ballots that are, you know, postmarked, mailed in by November 3rd. And I've kind of heard a little bit that Alaska is waiting to count their vote. So is there really any prediction right now on when we will have an answer to who the next president is going to be? Or is it just really a waiting game right now? Yeah, I'm not willing to make a prediction. (laughs) Uh, I think I think uh, I think we all experienced um, just in you know in this this these last several days uh, predictions often don't come true and uh, doesn't matter how many times we say it uh, doesn't make it true so I just think as you you made a good point that you know a lot of these election rules uh, are are dictated by the states and even though it's a federal election the states decide. Uh, how votes are counted and they decide, um, you know, their timeline of when they'll accept ballots and in what form. So I just can't predict when places like Alaska or Pennsylvania uh, will, will stop counting. Um, I mean, I think the overarching um, I think the overarching theme is that November 3rd kind of postmark date seems to be held pretty widely, though. I, I don't know. I think there's going to be some some folks that look at that and, and will you know potentially we could see challenges. And again, with all that out there, um, potential recall in, in certain places. I'm excuse me, potential uh, recount in certain places, or you know uh, litigation that might come from uh, the Trump campaign should this turn out in the vice president's favor. I think with all of that in, in play, I just can't predict when when it. Uh, when this kind of process will be wrapped up. Absolutely. I want to kick things over to talking about Biden because we've really seen Trump's view on agriculture, on trade and what he's done over the past four years. So I, I want to talk more specifically about Biden and what his anticipated winning would do for the agriculture industry. You know, just I guess at a 10,000 foot view because there's so many different facets and and all that fun stuff. So just at a 10,000 foot view, what would his winning essentially do for the ag industry? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think a lot of that will, uh, will depend on the secretary of agriculture that, that he names. Um, uh, You know, if you go back to the Obama administration, uh, Secretary Vilsack from Iowa clearly um, was viewed by many as as a strong proponent of of agriculture, and you know, in in many cases, provided somewhat of a balancing viewpoint, a balancing hand on things that the administration may have been pushing in other areas, such as the EPA, um, uh, Department of Labor, and and so I think. Uh, the Biden, Biden, uh, President Biden's impact on agriculture, I think, will have a lot to do with uh, the secretary uh, that he chooses. Um, I would anticipate, given that if if it holds that the Senate remains in Republican hands, that is going to certainly put a moderating effect on all cabinet nominees. 
um, and agriculture certainly would be um, one of those. And I guess what I'm saying is, uh, since the Republicans have the majority in the Senate, they get to they get to vote. They have the majority and they get to decide. Mitch McConnell gets to decide who's going to come up for a vote and win. And so that certainly will influence the nominees that uh, President Biden wouldn't uh, President Biden would name. Um, I don't want to make any predictions about who those are. I'll just say the names that I've, I've heard to date. And I think folks have seen those talked about it publicly. I think um, uh, I think there's a group out there of good folks to pick from that uh, would serve the egg industry well. Absolutely. I've also heard a, a few names that have been thrown around. So I'm excited to see if Biden is elected into office, what really goes down. But when we're talking about COVID-19, we've had two CFAP programs come out. CFAP 2, I've read that CFAP 2 payments are starting to slow down. And I've also heard from some producers about another stimulus bill and what's going to happen if if either Trump is reelected or if Biden takes office. So is there any talk mm-hmm. about stimulus that you're hearing from either side? Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. You know, obviously the CFAP 1.0 and 2.0. Um, I think largely were very well received by uh, uh, the ad community. Certainly, CFAP 2.0 made some changes that I, I think accommodated some concerns that the specialty crop industry had at the beginning of, of CFAP 1.0. But I think by and large, uh, seems like payments have been getting out and growers are applying and uh, getting registered and, and receiving those payments. Uh, there have been plenty of discussions about a broader COVID package. Um, to date, um, the House and the Senate have not been able to come to agreement on a broader COVID package, primarily um, given I think the numbers are just too far apart. Uh, the House passed a COVID package that was over $3 trillion. The Senate has put various uh, COVID packages on the floor, which were much smaller and ultimately uh, weren't able to get enough Republican support to get, even get those smaller packages to pass. Um, certainly getting past the election, I think that does allow for a return to conversations about the COVID package. I think the other thing you have to keep in mind is we also have to keep the government funded and just pay for our basic programs that we have. You know, we got a continuing resolution passed in September that um, you know, that allows the, the federal government to keep operating uh, through uh, mid-December. And so Congress is going to have to wrestle with that and getting either a CR, the continuing resolution, to keep that funding going for a short period, or they can try to get the full appropriations bills together um, uh, for the rest of the fiscal year. Um, so there's a, there are a number of things that that are kind of are on the table Um but I would say that, uh, you know, I would say it's more likely that another COVID package gets done once the new Congress is in place than during the lame duck. But I would not rule it out, if that makes sense. Yeah, Andrew, you make some great points there. I want to talk about trade for just a second and maybe more specifically our trade relationship with China. If we were to see Biden come into office what is the anticipation of trade looking like? What is his views on trade, I suppose, is what I'm really asking. And how do you see our relationship with China playing out on a trade basis? 
Yeah, no, it, it's a it's a good question. Um, you know, certainly the president took a lot of flack for his his approach on trade. I think ultimately I was able to get a successful phase one agreement with China that was uh, ha- has a path for great uh Great exports uh, to China. We certainly don't believe that we'll meet those uh, first year goals. A lot of that is due to the, the slow start uh, because of COVID. Um, I, look, I just would not anticipate um, an immediate uh, reversal uh, of of that that agreement. Uh, I think um, certainly uh, Trump has been tough on China. I don't think anyone would argue that the Biden administration has not also been tough, um, particularly if you think about his focus, uh, the campaign's focus and on um, uh, human rights in China, the Uyghur community. And and I just don't think, I, I don't think, I wouldn't look for a complete turnaround in what has been secured there in that phase one deal. Now, I, you know, I, I just, I'm not a card-carried member of the Democratic Party, and I'm not part of the Biden campaign, so I can't speak for them, but I just give you my opinion. I, you know, I, I think it's going to be hard to walk that back, certainly out of the gate, um, would be my estimation. Now, uh, you know, if you were talking about a second Trump term, then, you know, I think we, we would be asking, are we going to be going for a phase two agreement with China? And I would say I don't see that on the horizon. Um, if certainly not immediately, if if we're looking at a Biden first term. I just have one more question that I'm wanting to ask you before I let you go. Apart from maybe seeing some changes in the leadership of our president. If we do see a Biden win, we're seeing changes in agricultural leadership in general. So why don't you walk us through what those changes will be and what we can expect? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, so you have a situation where uh, the the current chairman of the Senate Agriculture Committee, Pat Roberts from Kansas, is retiring um, in the House and the House Agriculture Committee. Uh, Mike Conaway from Texas, the ranking member. Um, is retiring. And then uh, Colin Peterson, uh, the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, uh, was defeated this week. Um, and so I think you have a situation where you have three of what we would call the big four um, seats that uh, are vacant, are, are, are being vacated uh, for one reason or the other. And so what you'll see is a focus on who's going to take those spots uh, in the next Congress uh, on on the Senate Ag Committee, uh, uh, Senator Bozeman from Arkansas is next in line to take the chair. Um, I think everyone expects that. That is going to be who will be the next chair in the Senate Ag Committee. The House is a little different. You've got uh, on the Republican side and the Democratic side, you have uh, multiple folks that uh, are interested in the chair and the ranking positions. I will start with the ranking side on the Republican side. Um, you, you've got G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania. Um, you've got Austin Scott from Georgia and Rick Crawford from Arkansas. All three have uh, been, uh, you know, great, great members of the committee and have served as subcommittee uh, chairs and ranking members. Um, right now, I'd say G.T. has a leg up, um, you know, if for no other reason for seniority sake. Um, you know, all three would do a great job um, on the on the majority side, on the Democratic side. Uh, just going through seniority, you've got David Scott, who's the next in line from Georgia. Uh, you've got 
uh, Jim Plaster from California, and then you've got Marcia Fudge from Ohio. All three of those members have been on the Ag Committee for a while and also served in leadership uh, of subcommittees as chairs and ranking members. Um, you know, uh, David Scott just announced today that he is putting his name in the hat and running for the chairmanship. Um, so, you know, what we would be looking for next is, uh, you know, to, does Jim Costa, does uh, Marsha Fudge, to either, either one of them put their name in the hat too. And so I think we just stay tuned for that. Um, but that's kind of the situation. Pretty clear in the Senate and um, a little less clear in the House. But I think regardless, um, you've got some good members there that are, are ready to fill in. I will say, though, uh, with, with, with Peterson, Roberts, um, and Conaway retiring, you know, together that's 85 years of congressional experience and, uh, all that being spent, uh, working on behalf of production agriculture. And I think, I think that's just, uh, that's just a big loss to have all at one time. So, you know, we'll be looking to these, uh, to the new leadership and, and, uh, you know, folks like ourselves and others in the industry are ready to help them, uh, you know, get in place in their new in their new positions. Well, again, Andrew Harker of the Russell Group, thank you so much for coming on and talking politics with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Ashton. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. Even though it is important to care for weather stripping around vehicle or equipment doors and service access points, it is extremely critical in preparation for the winter months. Begin by cleaning the weather stripping with a strong detergent while performing an inspection for tears and cracks. Liberally apply a clear spray silicone of a brand of your choice. This product will preserve the rubber and not attract dust, but more importantly, make it harder for moisture to collect and freeze the door closed in the winter. It is not foolproof, but it will greatly reduce the chances of not being able to get into the operator's seat when the weather turns nasty. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineryDigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles where steel and soil meet. Again, a big thank you to Andrew for coming on the podcast today. And we chatted, you know, off the record when we weren't recording. And he is just very interesting and to hear his opinions on what's going on and what we can expect and just evaluating more of what we can anticipate if we are to see a Biden win and talking about the Senate and the House. There's so many things to discuss. And so I really appreciate him taking the time out to not only just talk about the presidency, but, you know, further elections such as, you know, the Senate and the House. Absolutely. All those things have the potential to impact what we do in the business of agriculture, Ashton. It certainly does. And we'll be evaluating these, you know, as as it develops and as we get some more answers as to who our next president will be. So be sure to tune in to future podcasts on our website at agnewsdaily.com. And as always, you can reach out to us on social media to share some of your thoughts and opinions on what we are going through right now in this crazy election. Our tags on social media are Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.